Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today, we generally assume that the rights outlined in the Bill of Rights protect us from abuses of our state and national governments alike. The First Amendment, for example, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religion or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to assemble together peacefully or to petition the government. But we don't think that this applies only to Congress. And we expect that our state governments would be bound by the terms of the First Amendment, just like the national government. It hasn't always been that way. When the First Amendment was written, the states continued to have established state churches well into the 19th century. And when they disestablished their churches, the states did so voluntarily and not because of anything written in the First Amendment. The same could be said of the Second Amendment, protecting the right to keep and bear arms, the Third Amendment, preventing soldiers from being quartered in private homes in peacetime, the Fourth Amendment, protecting against unreasonable searches and seizures, the Fifth Amendment, protecting against being tried for the same crime twice, being forced to testify against yourself, being deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or having the government take your property for public use without just compensation or the Sixth Amendment, guaranteeing the right to a public and speedy trial in which you're made aware of the accusations against you and you have the ability to confront witnesses and have the assistance of counsel, or the Seventh Amendment, guaranteeing the right of a jury trial in civil cases, or the Eighth Amendment, protecting against excessive bail, excessive fines, or cruel and unusual punishment. The dominant interpretation of these rights in the 19th century and even well into the 20th century was that they were rights you could claim only against the national government. They were tacked on at the end of the Constitution to highlight limitations on the power of the national government, limitations on the power that had been granted to Congress and to the national executive by the Constitution. But even that, highlighting these limitations in that way, provoked a worry, and that worry was highlighted by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 84 with a question Does this mean that the national government can do anything at once so long as it isn't forbidden from doing so in the Bill of Rights? Would this teach the wrong lesson about national power? And it was in light of that fear that we could read the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments, which seek to reiterate the logic of the national constitution. According to the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. This list of rights is in a sum total of our rights. There are others, and the fact that some are listed is an evidence that others don't exist at all. And then the Tenth Amendment says that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The national government isn't a government of plenary or general powers. It has specific powers delegated in the Constitution. And if there's a legitimate power of government that hasn't been delegated to the national government and it's not prohibited to the states, then the states retain that power. 
So that means on some things, like the power to conduct foreign policy or coin money or grant patents and passports, those would be exclusively national powers. They're granted to the national government and the Constitution. And then there are other things that the states are specifically forbidden from doing, like granting titles of nobility. Then there's this huge swath of life that the U.S. Constitution simply doesn't address. And in those areas, the powers of the state government and the rights that state citizens might be able to claim against their state government in their own state courts is handled at the state level. The Constitution leaves that as a matter to be worked out by the citizens of the states through the instruments of their own state governments as outlined in their own state constitutions. And in fact, a lot of those state constitutions did include detailed bills of rights that provided a model for those first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution. What it meant, though, in practice is that if you had a claim that your rights had been violated by your state or local government in some way, say you didn't have a fair trial or you were put into double jeopardy, that was between you and your state government. You could take your case to state court, but not federal court. And it would only become an issue that involved the U.S. Constitution and the federal courts if the federal government was involved in some way in depriving you of your rights. And this understanding is highlighted in the landmark case of Barron versus Baltimore in 1833. The case involves a guy named John Barron who inherits this profitable war from the Patapsco River in Maryland. The city of Baltimore did some regrading of the streets and diverted some of the streams to empty into that harbor. When they did, the streams dumped a bunch of sediment and dirt into the wharf. The water was then so shallow that boats couldn't pull up and the property largely lost its value. Barron is claiming in this lawsuit that the city of Baltimore, and by extension the state of Maryland, had taken his property for public use. The public use here being the regrading of these public streets but it done it without providing just compensation for the lost value of his property. He'd already lost his case in state court, so he brought it to federal court, and he argued that Maryland had violated his Fifth Amendment right not to have his property taken for public use without just compensation. And he's seeking here compensation. He wants to be compensated for his property. And so the question, does the Fifth Amendment have any relevance to this dispute between Barron and the city of Baltimore? The answer Chief Justice John Marshall gives is no, that the federal courts have no jurisdiction to hear this case because the Fifth Amendment just doesn't have anything to say about what your state government may or may not lawfully do. As Marshall wrote at the beginning of his opinion, the question in this case was of great importance but not of much difficulty. The great importance was whether the Bill of Rights applied to the states. The answer was no. And it wasn't a difficult question to answer according to Marshall because the limitations in those first amendments to the Constitution were intended to be limitations on the national government only. Here's how Marshall put it in his 19th century legal way of speaking. The Constitution was ordained and established by the people of the United States for themselves, for their own government, and not for the government of the individual states. Each state established a constitution for itself— and in that constitution provided such limitations and restrictions on the powers of its particular government as its judgment dictated. The people of the United States framed such a government for the United States as they supposed best adapted to their situation and best calculated to promote their interests. The powers they conferred on this government were to be exercised by itself, and the limitations on power if expressed in general terms are naturally and we think necessarily applicable to the government created by the instrument. They are limitations of power granted in the instrument itself. 
not of distinct governments framed by different persons and for different purposes. If these propositions be correct, Marshall went on, the Fifth Amendment must be understood as restraining the power of the general government, not as applicable to the states. In their several constitutions, they have imposed such restrictions on their respective governments as their own wisdom suggested, such as they deemed most proper for themselves. It is a subject on which they judge exclusively and with which others interfere no further than they're supposed to have a common interest. And so this is where things are left in 1833. And it represents a dominant understanding of the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the state governments. So what changed after 1833? Why do we look at this so differently today? And why do we expect that we could claim these rights outlined in the Bill of Rights against our state governments? It's a complicated story, and we'll spend the next couple of episodes trying to make sense of it. The short version is that the Supreme Court, over time, came to interpret the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, in a way that made most, but not all, of the rights in the Bill of Rights applicable to the state governments, equally with the federal government. It's a process that's actually still ongoing. It was just in 2010 that the court held for the first time that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms posed limits on state as well as national regulations of firearms. For the most part, though, today we just assume that these rights outlined in the Constitution are rights which we have against both state and national governments. And the big part of this story involves the Civil War, and the amendments passed immediately after the war to address the issue of slavery and civil rights for those who had been emancipated. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, abolishes slavery nationwide. After the formal abolition of slavery, it was clear to many in Congress that something more was needed. It wasn't enough for the vision of freedom and equal citizenship that they held out to say only that slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist. There are certain necessary protections to safeguard freedom, and Congress had a vision for those safeguards in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, an act passed nearly a century before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that act did several important things. First, it said that all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. If you're born here, you're a citizen. Second, it says that citizens of every race and color, quote, shall have the same right in every state and territory of the United States to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to enjoy the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens, and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other, any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom to the contrary notwithstanding. This is an early sketch of a positive vision of freedom that entails equal citizenship, equal economic rights, rights to contract and own property, to give evidence in court, and equal treatment by the criminal justice system, equal benefits, and equal punishments. There was a problem, though. It wasn't clear that Congress had the authority to pass this act in the first place. Under what enumerated power would it do so? Under the theory of federalism reflected in cases like Barron versus Baltimore, civil rights were really a matter to be handled by the state governments. The national government just didn't have any authority to interfere in these kinds of disputes about civil rights at the state level. And so the same Congress that passes the 1866 Civil Rights Act 
also proposes the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. That amendment, ratified in 1868, solidifies the constitutional ground of the 1866 Civil Rights Act and does by constitutional amendment some of what the Act was doing by statute. According to the 14th Amendment, if you're born in the United States, then you're a citizen of the United States. And the amendment introduces new constitutional limitations on state governments. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And then Congress, according to the 14th Amendment, shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. What does all of that mean for the Bill of Rights? or what states are now allowed or not allowed to do under the Constitution? Did anything about the 14th Amendment change the understanding about the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the state governments found in Barron versus Baltimore? It isn't exactly clear. States can't deprive citizens of the privileges or immunities of citizenship, but what are those exactly? And states can't deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. But what process of law is due or owed? And states can't deprive anyone within their jurisdiction of the equal protection of the laws. But how do we know when a law fails to protect people equally? Laws classify and categorize people all the time for all sorts of reasons. When do those legal distinctions run afoul of the 14th Amendment? These questions have occupied the Supreme Court for the last century and a half, beginning with a consequential decision in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873, where we'll begin next week as we venture into the story of how the Bill of Rights came to be applied against the states.